This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm a Ravenclaw. And I'm a Gryffindor. And this week we discuss J.K. Rowling's 1998 fantasy novel, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. holidays merry christmas we're in the middle of december now and we are going to do the ultimate christmas classic harry potter and the chamber of secrets what what hey it feels like the holidays to me no i mean (laughs) any harry potter related stuff feels like a holiday to me so we're we're going back home we talked about it in our other series of episodes about uh sorcerer slash philosopher's stone uh and we both said that you know it feels very holiday family oriented kind of homey feeling project and they like to put them on you know during the holidays you'll see uh, marathons of these films uh so eh, kind of appropriate whatever close enough <laughs> hey it works it works for me last year we did die hard which was you know also kind of maybe a controversial christmas movie so maybe that's on brand for us i don't know <laughs> i mean a lot yeah there's a whole argument you know some there's some passionate people about the whole die hard christmas thing I've met a lot of people oh, yeah. who are for it, which I am, and I've met a lot of people who are like, it's not a Christmas movie. But we talked about that in that episode. Yeah, yeah. Last year's episode, if you want to get more of that, um, yeah, highly controversial. But for this movie, I think I'll maybe even more controversial. I don't think any... I think we might be out on a limb here calling this a Christmas movie. Well, if you just watch only the Christmas scene and then turn it off, then you watch the <laughs> Christmas movie, I feel like. There you go. Uh, so we did put it up for a vote, uh, that and a couple other titles uh, in our in our Facebook page, the Council of Inklings, and this was what was voted for, so we decided to go with it. Um, also on that page, we put up a vote to find out, I wanted to find out, our listeners, at least those of us, those that are on the, the Facebook page, um, what house they belong to, because so I was curious like what the predominant house would be, and did, did you see what, what's currently in the lead? I did see it. I'm not surprised, yeah. but at the same time, I am, if that makes sense. Okay. So it's Ravenclaw is in the lead. Um, but the, the more surprising thing to me... Now, see, I'm not that surprised because it's like knowledge and like, yeah, we're kind of like a knowledge-based podcast. So that kind of makes sense. Um, the one that was a little more surprising to me is in second place is Slytherin. How about that? I don't know. It's like, I, I think there's been this huge surge of of like... There was, a, I feel like there, there was a bit of shying away from other houses for a while with Harry Potter, and then as as more time has separated it, I'm sure there were people who identified right away as yeah. as Slytherin and Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw. But I feel like because of the story being so Gryffindor centric, people were very drawn to it, and I feel like there's been a lot of people realizing like, oh, I'm not necessarily that. I think I fit more in with this, and I think you posting that poll came at the perfect time because this this book is really where we dive into kind of like what it means to be sorted into your house and what it actually you know we in this book they kind of talk about how it's a choice and it's more of just like what you choose to be what you strive to be what you like identify with more than what you necessarily inherently are yeah and we we've talked about that a little bit in our in our last book coverage too about how our history with getting into our houses and all that so if you you want to hear more of that stuff our, our our other episodes 
about Harry Potter covers that. Um, but I am going to leave that poll open. Um, so if anybody wants to join up in the group and, and cast your vote and see if you can tip the scales in, in, in any directions, go ahead and do that. And I'll update if, if anything does change in the next episode. Yeah. Where are all my Gryffindors at? I feel like there's, there's <laughs> yeah, a couple Gryffindor more Gryffindors out there. Yeah. There's a couple more. Come on. I know there is. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to, to, to see how that all plays out. So with this book, I have some general thoughts that I wanted to get into and uh, kind of hear some of yours. I feel like this book is another foundational book for the Harry Potter series. Like, I feel like this one really lends itself to the first book. Like, the two together create, I think, the foundation that will carry on for three, four, five, six, seven. And so I think that it's still, it's a little samey. Like, it feels very similar to Sorcerer's Stone while adding new elements, adding new characters. Um, And also being kind of still, I mentioned in the first uh, Harry Potter episode, that mystery element is very prominent in this one where it's like, somebody did something and how are the Harry Potter, how are Harry Potter and his friends going to solve it? And like, you could say most of them follow some sort of format like that, but these ones are very specifically like sorcerer's stone. There's a stone. What's going on with that? There's a chamber of secrets. <laughs> what's going on with that? So, uh, I think that, I think that as far as the foundation that JK Rowling is laying, this book is similar, but also kind of is just expanding on some of the social issues she wanted to touch on. Like you can clearly see the house elves and the slavery that they go through is like a, mm. a commentary that she's making. And, um, and then cl- the mudblood, uh, bringing up mudbloods and, and that becoming a prominent thing within their universe. And I think it really adds to the texture of the world to make people closeted racist basically, or like not even necessarily yeah. very closeted racist. And so just the commentaries being made there, I think were important, more adult than the first book, but also still sticking in with that kind of more, uh, younger audience. Yeah. I mean, you, you talked about a lot of the observations I, I had for this novel. Um, it, it plot structure is almost identical to the, uh, to the first novel, which is like, I get what you're saying about it being it working in some ways, but it definitely also has drawbacks. Um, I think especially for maybe older readers, readers who are more savvy and can like pick up on the fact that this, the plot is the exact same structure with the same kind of reveals, the same kind of showdown, the same kind of mystery with just a couple of the elements sort of like blended and, 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 and tossed up to make it a little bit different. But the, just the structure of the novel is almost identical where it almost feels like you, there was like blanks in this like plot outline and then you just went through and you like erased Philosopher's Stone and you replace it with Chamber of Secrets and you erase, you know, what, uh, Quirrell and you replace it with, you know, it's like, it's, you just go through and you, and you, you can kind of like plug, plug in each new element. But like you said, the, some of the pros that can come with that is that it does, um, establish a sort of a pattern that, that when future novels go away from that pattern can really highlight freshness, right? Like, oh, this is very different than that. And then it also provides sort of a foundation of like, this is what a Harry Potter story is. And so now all the rest of the ones that follow after are always going to be kind of viewed against these first two, I guess, is like the more like classic Harry Potter story. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm saying the same thing in two different ways there, but <laughs> you, you get what I'm meaning? <laughs> no, I see what you say. Yeah, because and, and I agree with that. I think that it is. Uh, it felt it feels kind of safe like it feels like she had the first one yes. and then she kind of followed up on that with something safe again but I will say like personally and maybe it's nostalgia maybe I'm a little biased like I still really really love the story and and like I said the the key things for me are the way that she fleshes out the society like the actual culture yeah. of the wizarding world and then also 
uh just like we we get way more from other houses we get way more from other characters kind of interactions with uh other characters in classes and and uh specifically just like hanging out with the weasleys and yeah. like uh going to class a lot of going to class and really feeling like you were there at school with them is in this novel yeah absolutely definitely fleshes out things um i like that you brought up the themes of racism and and uh maybe even classism and and all that i think that is a, it's there's a stronger thematic element to this I would say because a lot of the same themes from the first one are there, like coming of age and and bullying and things like that are still present. But then you add in these other ones too, right on top of it, and and so I think thematically this might be the stronger novel of the two. Um, it, you know, in my opinion, it it really tackles some some interesting stuff. I think it's great to introduce to children who are young. Uh, you know, kind of the dangers of this sort of thinking. So yeah, it's it's definitely good in that regard. I want to kind of touch on some of the some of the stuff around the writing of this novel that, that I was able to find out. Not a lot, but I found a little bit. And then we can get into just more like of a summary, and we'll, we'll touch on different scenes and react to them and talk about them. Sounds good. So Rowling was finding it difficult to finish this book because she was afraid it was not going to live up to the expectations that had been raised by the runaway success that was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. So after she delivered the manuscript to Bloomsbury on schedule, she took it back for six weeks of revision. Um, it's said that or she's revealed that in early drafts of the novel, the ghost of nearly headless Nick sang a self-composed song about his condition and the circumstances of his unknown death that was then cut because the editor thought that uh, did not care for the poem. Uh, eventually, I guess J.K. Rowling released the poem on her website. Oh, interesting. Um, but was cut from the book. Um, also, the family background of Dean Thomas was removed because uh, the publishers considered it an unnecessary digression. Um, so apparently there was a lot more about Dean Thomas in there. That's also interesting because that would have given us more, um, of another care, like some, some backstory of another character other than our main three. Yeah, for sure. So the, the book came out in the UK in 1998, which we used, we used that date at the top of the, the show here. Um, but in the U S it came out in, uh, almost a year later in 1999, um, it immediately took first place in UK bestseller lists, displacing popular authors such as John Grisham, Tom Clancy, and Terry Pratchett, making Rowling the first author to ever win the British Book Awards Children's Book of the Year Award for two years in succession. In June 1999, it went straight to the top of three US bestsellers list, including the New York Times. Overall, the critical response was, was very positive to this. A lot of people saying that it was one of the rare sequels that lived up to the original. Um, a lot of people praising... Um, the thematic elements, the, the tackling of racism. There was some criticism for like what, what we talked about being kind of a similar plot structure. Um, but I wonder how much of this is like, because I don't read a lot of children's books. I feel like I, I would bet that having a similar structure is pretty common. Like I think back about books I used to read like, um, what is that? It's like uh, My Teacher's an Alien. There was like a book, there's like a book series like I, that. Yeah. Well, Goosebumps is one for me. Goosebumps. Like yeah. Yeah, and a lot of those, a lot of those like kids' books tended to have a similar structure, right? And then they just kind of like recycle different elements into it. So I wonder if there was less of a expectation that she was going to change this up early on, and then as she started to do that more, people started to go, "Oh, okay, this is growing into something different than what we thought it was going to be." Because she could have kept just, she could have just kept doing this, right? Right. Like you can see a world where an author just keeps doing the same formula over and over, not just twice, but you know five, six, seven times until it's no longer popular and runs it into the ground, kind of thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where it deviates, right? From a kid's novel yeah. and, it, and it evolves into something else. It was growing with the readers. It was, it became adult novels by the end. I mean, you could still argue that they were YA and that they were like aimed sure. towards children, but they absolutely had way darker themes than you would well, show to a y- young YA child. YA can encompass all, you know, lots of ages and can be read by adults. So, you know, YA is a broad term. So just because something's YA doesn't mean that adults aren't reading it or that like late teens aren't reading it. Um, I think the one that is a little more is middle grade is tends to be a little more restrictive and tends to not be read by adults as much. Um, And you could I think you could argue that these first two books are middle grade. Um, But then from here on, maybe it starts to get more into YA territory. And it's what 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 really ultimately keeps the last few books. I'm just wondering, in your opinion, what keeps the last like book or two from being full adult, like being an adult novel, just lack of sex and like extreme violence? I haven't read the I, so that's the other thing is I haven't read anything past this book. This is I, now I re, I have read this book twice now because uh, I had read this before, but last time I stopped at this point, and so I still haven't read anything from here on. I've seen the movies, but I haven't read them. Um, so I will be interested to track that. Uh, I think it's a nebulous thing, and it's not an easy answer. But yes, I would say it tends to be some sort of explicit content, um, and I don't know how explicit the books get later, um, but. Usually when you're in adult fiction, uh, especially sex scenes, especially, you know, uh, language and violence and stuff like that, you can tell that the author is writing it in such a way that they're not holding anything back for the sake of a younger audience. If it ever feels like there's a certain care being placed on those like sensitive areas before the audience... Um, and that and that care is kind of throughout the novel. That's kind of a sim- signifier to me that it is a YA novel because um, gotcha. it's intended to be to now what where that line is for everybody can be different. Right. And can change from author to author, from reader to reader. Um, but a lot of times, it's you know, people say, like, you know, it when you see it kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Because like my thing is, is like you might show these now that all of them are out. If you have a young child, you might show them the Harry Potter books. Once you get to like book six or seven, you're you're going to think about what you're showing your kid. Like it starts to get into the if your kid is like six or seven, you might not want them to be exposed to that necessarily yet. So it's kind of interesting that because like you say, it definitely leaves that middle grade and it goes into like full YA it's, to where it goes up it's to like weird because because movies don't have this problem. Movies don't movies have a different rating system and theirs is, is, is a lot easier to understand. They're say this is suitable for this agent up, right? Yeah. PG-13. So PG-13 is not YA, but in the literary world, it kind of would be. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but like we don't look at Avengers and go, oh, that's a YA movie. You know? <laughs> right. That's a movie yeah. for everyone, obviously. So there is some some like weirdness surrounding these labels and, and how and like certain baggage they can carry with them. So a uh, question for you, Did, as far as like the community is concerned, and, and I'm not saying I'm not trying to speak for the entire community, but there are people that have told me I actually and I don't have this opinion personally, but there are people have told me that this is their least favorite book that two. It seems like from what I was I was going through and looking at polls and all this stuff this morning, it seems like two might be a lot of people's least favorite book. Um, and mm. it's like it's pretty interesting to think that if this is their least favorite book, it's still a really high bar for the lowest in the series. Now, I don't I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, I know that two isn't my least favorite. OK, I don't know because I haven't read the rest. Um, 
And as far as what are people's least favorite book is, I can't really speak to that. I know um, that a lot of people say the the second movie is their least favorite movie, um, which we can talk about next week when we get to the movie. I don't want to get into it too much here. Um, for me, I I can go ahead and say that I don't think this is my least favorite novel because I enjoyed reading it more than I enjoyed reading the first one. Now, that may be controversial because obviously the first one is what kicked it all off, right? And so there's a lot right. of like, how dare you? Um, but I just think as far as like my reading experience, especially coming back to it after having read everything and seen all these movies, that kind of stuff, like I enjoyed reading this novel a little more than I enjoyed reading that. And I think that we talked about it last time. A lot of it is the like false mystery of Snape was yeah. gone from this. And like I find that plot line just very boring in the first book because I know that the, he's not a villain. Um, mm-hmm. whereas once you eliminated that, it kind of like cleared it up. And then I liked the added depth that this book brought to the world. Like you said, I think it's thematically stronger than the first novel. Um, so to me, it was a slightly more enjoyable experience. Now I still have some issues with the ending, but I thought the ending was maybe slightly better in this one too, like the final confrontation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for me, like I can just say out of these two books, I liked it more than Philosopher's Stone, which maybe is super controversial. I don't know, but <laughs> that's just me. So I'll, I'll be interested to get into the ending with you because this is, the, in the first one, yeah, it's setting up the rest of the series. But in this one, it, there's a direct through line that's being set up for the entire overarching story. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting. It'll be interesting to like go through and, and see how what she was already setting up is pretty, pretty impressive because we as readers really didn't come to know kind of the stuff that she'd been setting up until like book six Mm. or at least the significance, like we understood it. And I think we'll get more into it, but it's just the fact that like there's a young Tom Riddle, a young Voldemort in this. So, Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Bring it up as it comes up. Um, If you're ready, I think what I want to do is I'm going to do a pretty good size summary. I'll, I'll break it up into chunks. Then we can react to the chunks of this novel. Sounds cool. All right, so before we do that, I was realizing we never say this early on in an episode, and we're still fairly early on here. Um, if you can, please subscribe to our podcast because um, that really helps more than almost anything, honestly, is subscriber numbers. And then also it'll make sure that you get that next episode. So next week we're going to be covering the movie, and it'll make sure that you get that in your feed right away as soon as it drops. So that can be a huge help for us. And uh, a lot of the a lot of the like things you read online are like, make sure to tell them to subscribe at the start of the episode. And we've never done that before, so I thought I'd give it a try in the middle this time. <laughs> See how it goes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So Harry is spending a miserable summer with the Dursleys. During a dinner party hosted by his uncle and aunt, Harry is visited by Dobby, a house elf. Dobby warns Harry not to return to Hogwarts, the magical school for wizards that Harry attended the previous year. Harry disregards the warning, and Dobby wreaks havoc in the kitchen, infuriating the Dursleys. The Dursleys imprison Harry in his room for the rest of the summer until Harry's friend Ron Weasley steals Harry away in a flying car, and Harry happily spends the rest of the summer at at the Weasley home. I wanted to ask you about something that's always, you know, I haven't really dug into it online or anything to see what the consensus is, but so Harry's blamed for the magic that Dobby uses, right? by by the ministry they say like there was an underage magic being used in the house um right so house elves use the same type of magic that wizards do so seemingly like this i mean who knows what the force or whatever it is that gives these people their power but house elves specifically do spells without wands and so what does that mean that they're like Mm. just more powerful they're more in tune to this magic that they're able to like wield it without wands and and also the fact that the ministry it seems like an oversight because basically that means that if somebody's using magic in the weasley's household 
then there's no way that the ministry can tell that it was underage magic. You know what I mean? Because if, if any magic is used in the house, then it just means that they just know that magic is being used in the house and it could be Arthur or, or Molly. So in-world Harry Potter, you know, Pottermore answers, I don't have for you. I don't know it well enough. But from a general fantasy point of view, I would think that Dobby represents a creature of the Fae and sort of a magical creature in and of himself. Um, and those would tend to be more attuned to the magic world. And the wand would represent more of a bridge between the human world and the world of the Fae and the magical world. Um, so to me, it makes sense that humans would need some sort of instrument or that an instrument would at least amplify their power or enable them to to do it in a way that they wouldn't otherwise, whereas someone who is a Fae creature wouldn't need that. Um, but that's just more general fantasy thoughts than I don't know. I don't know what it is in the world of Harry Potter. <laughs> I mean, there are wizards who use magic without wands, obviously, and it becomes a, you know, it's something that powerful wizards and people who are who are more magically inclined they can do that. Um, okay. But it's just interesting to think that like the house elves are slaves to wizards, yeah. and yet they could potentially be more powerful than wizards. Well, they're at least more connected directly. You yeah. know, whether or not they're more powerful, I don't know. Um, but yeah, that is interesting for sure. I did want to just kind of react to Dobby in general because this is a this is a character who self harms, um, which I think is interesting, right? Like it's 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 kind of a we talked about this in our sharp objects to to compare this to a completely different sort of wow <laughs> wow you on there huh? um, yeah but uh, I mean self harm is something that a lot of like um, people in general but you know especially teens are still figuring things out. Um, it is a real issue, and it's a real thing that crops up with mental health. And we see Dobby punishing himself, right, with you know inflicting pain. Um, so I don't know, like, how did you felt? How did you feel like it was dealt with? Was it too comical, or did you feel like it maybe it dealt with it in a good way? Like, I don't know. What did you What did you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I honestly hadn't thought of it in that in that context before because for me it's he was always more of a comedic character so yeah maybe it was a little insensitive because it was just uh to me it was always like he's so he's such a righteous being that he feels the need to after doing something that he sees as right even though it's wrong in the eyes of his master he sees the need to punish himself so it's it's interesting because it's always it also goes back to that slavery thing it's like is it is it a because he doesn't have to hurt himself. There's not like yeah. a spell on him or something like that. But it's it's this thing where it's like he's such a righteous person that he knows that like although it's he knows he feels the need to do this, he also feels the need to hurt himself because of his masters, which I don't know. It is yeah. interesting. Yeah, and I don't know that it's insensitive, but um, I think it is something to consider. And I think uh, Dobby's self-harm is sort of played to be somewhat comical. But on the other hand, I think I I strongly felt sorry for him. And I think the reader should feel sorry for him. And also, like, you want to reach out and tell him to stop, right? Like, you always want to be like, no, 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 don't do that. There's no need to do that. He's, like, slamming his fingers in doors or griddles or whatever he was doing later. Like, he ironed his face or something. I can't remember what all he does. Yeah. Um, and, like, you, you feel like Harry's wanting to be like, no, don't do that. Why are you doing that to yourself? And he's, like, banging his head against the wall. And um, I think we've also all been around people who – you know, whether real, like really do this or like metaphorically do this, like beat themselves up over stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I don't know. I I feel like sometimes seeing that on the page can help you identify behaviors that maybe you hadn't thought about before. 
right? Yeah, and like definitely. maybe kind of like shown in like an over the top way, you can at least identify similar behaviors and whether in yourself or in people you know. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think it, like I said a minute ago, I was saying it was insensitive. I don't think it's insensitive as much as I was just thinking that maybe someone who had gone through self harm would see that and then be like triggered or think of that. It could be, yeah. Um, but I think I think in the context of what's going on, Dobby hurting himself in the room while Harry's trying to be quiet. I think that's part of the reason why. I think it's just because he's loud. He's being loud, uh, while at the same time, like doing like sl- things that are, I think, supposed to be more slapstick. Uh, no, and I, there's definitely an element of slapstick to to what he's doing. That's right. absolutely true. And I was starting to worry that we were going to get a bit of the droid from the from Star Wars syndrome, where it's like just not treated like they're you know human beings, and obviously he's not a human being, but treated like they're sentient you know, be- beings with feelings and stuff. Like, um, I-, I was worried. I remember the first time I saw this, I'm like, what's going on with this, with this, you know, Dobby character. But I'm glad to see that that's not the arc and that the arc does address sort of his, his, uh, agency and, and his right to have a, you know, dignified life and all that. So, yeah. um, I'm glad to see that that it was that it was treated that way. Yeah, and I um, there's just one more thing that I feel like we haven't said is is that Dobby's awesome. Like I love Dobby, uh, and like the way that that Harry's so frustrated with him throughout this novel is so funny to me. Like he keeps being like, "Why are you trying to kill me to keep me away from getting killed?" Uh, it's just it's so funny. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's go to the se- next section here. So while shopping for school supplies with the Weasleys, Harry first encounters Lockhart, one of his teachers, who demands to be in a photo shoot with Harry. Harry then encounters Lucius Malfoy, the father of Draco Malfoy, who almost starts a fight with Mr. Weasley. As Harry prepares to return to Hogwarts, he finds that he and Ron are unable to enter the magically invisible train platform, so they fly the Weasley car to Hogwarts. They land messily, and both boys are given detentions. All right, so that jumps through another big section of the book. Let's talk about the Weasleys. This is something, and we'll talk about it more in the movie episode, but the Weasleys, Harry gets to spend most of, like, some of the summer with the Weasleys, and this, this uh, domestic, seeing the domestic wizards, and even more so the, these poorer wizards who, uh, yeah, they're all happy, but they don't necessarily have a ton of money, and, and uh, Arthur's fascination with muggle stuff is, is always great to me. And then just, just thinking of Harry and, and the, the Weasleys boys playing Quidditch, uh, out on their land somewhere, and it, it just like it's such the polar opposite of what Harry his life was like before. So it makes him, you know, yearn for this magical family even more. And and I just love, although I understand why it was cut from the movie. This this I like the, you know, there there's more, much more of it in the book, which is I, I think hmm. good for his character. Yeah, so I agree. I think it was a brilliant decision to show what a poor wizard family. Uh, how their life is Um, because then you can see sort of their commonplace magic that it would be so cool to us but it's just so commonplace to them and 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 i don't know there's just something really interesting about that idea of like even the poorest wizard family has certain things that like would set them apart from the richest of like the muggles right Um, certain just like cool parts of their lives and, and things they're able to do and um, it just creates a cool dynamic that that really makes you feel like you're seeing something special, I guess. And and, and you know, I, I really like that. And then it also just like leads you to go like, what would it be like to be like a rich wizard who who has like all these fancy devices and or maybe like a powerful wizard who who can do all this stuff? I don't know. Um, well, it's like yeah. It's and then you talked about the Malfoys and and Nocturne Alley is something else where <laughs> Harry hears about he, he's, he overhears Lucius selling 
dark or wanting to sell dark magical artifacts and things like that and they have like you know hidden rooms in their like you can only imagine what it would be like in their household um Mm. and what's also crazy is just going to nocturne alley and seeing that there's an area where dark wizards hang out so close by to diagon alley which is where kids go to buy their supplies. Yeah, it's like, is it like the next road over or something? Like what? Yeah. <laughs> and how about the, and then the flu powder too. I, I always thought the flu powder, I, I want flu powder so bad. So how does flu powder work? If you could explain that. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I mean, from my understanding, basically there's like um, grates, right? Like there's, there's, there's certain entrances and exits and saying the name of where you want to go takes you towards a certain grate. But I think it's up to you to step off at the correct grade. Mm. So you're kind of traveling through this, like, I don't know. T- I've always envisioned it as like a, some sort of weird, like, tunnel thing or like this room. And then it takes you to a certain area and then there's certain grades and you just step out. Cool. Yeah, that sounds good. So it sounds like <laughs> Harry went a, a grade too far. He went a little bit too far to, to end up in Nocturne yeah. Alley. So what did you think about Nocturne Alley just from all the description and all the weird stuff that was around? They made it out to be like the scary place, but I have a feeling it's like it's more just like seedier, I guess, than other parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the first time we're there, we're seeing something kind of sketchy go down, but, you know, with the Malfoys, but... Um, I don't know this for sure because I don't remember, but I assume like they probably need to come back to Nocturne Alley in, in future books for different reasons and do different things here. So um, I want, I'll be interested to see if this is like a, a setting that comes back in a different way in the future. Um, but one thing I did want to talk about was Lockhart, um, who I find to be a really interesting character. And, and I think he serves a cool role in the novel as far as like thematically. Because there is a certain theme of not trusting uh, authority figures that's carried throughout. I mean, that was in the last book too, mm-hmm. and and be, maybe like being having a healthy suspicion for what people's motivations are versus like what they say and what their what their motivations actually are. Um, and I think this is like really useful in navigating today's society, right? Yeah. Uh, to just because someone is in position of authority does not mean that they have, you know, the right reasons for it or the, that they're a good person or that they are doing things that are, you know, just in, in whatever fashion. And, and we see here, you know, at first blush, he seems to be okay, but then it quickly becomes apparent that he's uh, clearly a narcissist, willing to lie and overinflate his ego and uh, stop me when this sounds familiar. Um, <laughs> um, to, you know, to sing his own praises, talk about all the things he's able to do, even you know, even though he repeatedly shows that he can't do them. Uh, yeah, he's he's. You know, he is a Ravenclaw. <laughs> oh my God! Don't tell me that he's a Ravenclaw. Yeah. <laughs> who, according to who? He's he's a he should no, be no. a Slytherin. Like as far in, in canon, like he's a Ravenclaw in the books. And so. Oh wait, 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 you're talking about Lockhart. Yes. Okay, I thought you were talking about Trump. <laughs> I thought you were like, Trump's a Ravenclaw. I'm like, I, no, don't put him in any house. Yeah. <laughs> that would be, let's not, let's I not put I him in any house. I don't know that I want it. Yeah, I don't even want to go there. I don't want to place him. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Uh, so, yeah, Lockhart's a, he's a Ravenclaw, and it's interesting because, like, he clearly is, is like, a smart guy, and he's realized that he can swindle. So it's almost, but it's all, so he's sorted Ravenclaw. But I feel like he also has other other things threaded in. And I think that's a theme throughout this story is that it's like everyone potentially has multiple houses. And and but it's it's very interesting to see his character because he he also has that killer instinct. Like he'll do whatever it takes to stay on top and to be successful. So it's interesting because he almost has like a cunning like Slytherin aspect to him as well. Yeah, I mean, he um 
I, I never want. I never. I've never bought into the idea that if you're in, you know, a certain house, you're always a good person, <laughs> and if you're no, Gryffindor, yeah. you're always a good person, and you, if you're in Slytherin, you're always a bad person. I, I think that's not true. I think there's good and bad people in all the houses, um, and I think there's like. There's just like if you're gonna break bad in any particular house, there tends to be certain ways it might go. And I think for Ravenclaw, it's very much like ego. It's very much you know like maybe maybe favoring knowledge over you know certain th- like hurt hurting people and stuff like that, not caring. Um, and I so I want to shout out a, a YouTube channel that does a series of episodes on the different houses. It's called I think Screen Prism. Are you familiar with this channel? Yeah, I really like that channel. Yeah, have you seen they do they've done one for like every house now, like every different Hogwarts house? No, I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah, it's really cool. So they it's these like little video essays about each house and and normally it's trying to sort of like it's they're not all the same, but they're all like talking about some facet of that house. And uh I watched the one about Ravenclaw uh recently and it was talking about about uh Lockhart as sort of the example of like when the Ravenclaw can go bad. Interesting. So definitely check that out. It's a, you know, yeah, it's a, just a cool thing. Yeah, I'll check that out for sure. I have to say, um, regardless of what house he is in, in all of that, I I always have hated Lockhart so much. I can't stand this character, sure. and I know we're supposed to hate him, but like yeah. I'm like, oh god, like I it, he makes me cringe so hard all the time, and especially when he's talking to other professors and trying to tell them what's what. Oh my god. Oh god. Dude. Which we I can't wait to get to the scene where he duels Snape because one of my favorites. So yeah, one of the most. Uh, iconic parts of this book is the flying car and the way that they get to to Hogwarts and the Dobby's trapped them from from entering the platform. This flying car thing is it has always been interesting to me because it it becomes a character like it's like they talk about it like a dog later and it clearly saves them. Um, So I'm just wondering how powerful does a spell have to be that you can turn something completely sentient to where it like (laughs) it's autonomous on its own and it has its own like wants and needs and things that it does. On a scale from one to removing all the bones in your arm, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, man. Uh, I, I have no real handle on what's a powerful spell and what's not uh, in this world. But I will say the flying car was cool because it was like it's one of those things that I think a lot of children sort of fantasize about, like being able to fly in something like that, or at least it it, it fits a certain fantasy of flight that I think is universal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like how it started out being that for Harry and then like he quickly got bored and wanted to be back on the train. Yeah. And it's like hot. Yeah. He's like, oh, it's hot. I don't have it. Yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't like go buy, I can't go buy beverages and like all the stuff. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was clever. It was, you know, well done. Um, so now that they're on campus, they don't get, you know, they do get some detentions, but they don't get expelled. Uh, Quidditch practice begins, and Draco Malfoy is the new Slytherin seeker. On the field, he calls Hermione a mudblood, insulting her muggle heritage. After taunting Hermione, Draco is the suspect when, on Halloween night, someone petrifies the caretaker's cat and writes a threatening message. Before the cat is attacked, Harry twice hears an eerie voice. He hears it first during his detention and second during a party, the moments before the cat is attacked. By doing some research, Harry, Ron, and Hermione learned that 50 years ago, a chamber at Hogwarts was opened and a student was killed. So let's talk about mudbloods. Um, yeah. Which it feels dirty to even say it. Like I don't, I don't like reading it, but it feels worse to say it. I love that that like all of our protagonists didn't even know what it meant. Yeah. Um, but they well, could tell it was bad. Ron, I think Ron. Because knew. I feel like. Okay, but I, yeah, you're right, Ron. But Hermione and Harry didn't know. Yeah. Um, and, and Hermione was being called in. She didn't, you know, she didn't know what it meant, but she knew it was bad. And and to me, that is so true to life. 
because I feel like everybody has a memory like that, even if it's not specific. But like, I, I feel like the first time you hear some like really bad word or some slur, like some racial slur or something, the first time you hear it, you know, it's bad just by the way people say it and the way other people react to it. Right. Even if you've never heard it before and you have no idea what it means. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I love that it, it gives it like it elevates that to the status of like, this is the N word in, in, you know, Harry Potter world. Uh, you know, I, or it's of a similar level to, to some sort of slur like that, right? I, I think it's very interesting that she introduced this because it is her way of tackling, you know, racism within society, our, our current society. And obviously she's British, so she has a, you know, there's racism in every culture, but it's a different kind yeah. of racism that's here in the U.S., it's like aristocracy, right? Like the pure blood uh, right to rule. That's a very big thing in, in British society, right? Like being of the royal bloodlines. And there's definitely a similarity there between that and the magic blood to me. Um, I, but, you know, broadly you can widen out the racism, but also more just like royal blood versus not royal blood. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, prevalent, highly prevalent in, in that society. Yeah. A couple, of, a couple of ways that I think this is handled really well by J.K. Rowling is, is, the way that she talks about, well, I guess once once they get to Hagrid's, the way that they talk about how, you know, they the race would have their their the wizards would have died out had they not started having children with Muggles for one, and for two, it doesn't matter in terms of in terms of power or in terms of anything. Like like they he talks yeah. about how I loved how he said that Hermione, like the, you know, there's not a spell that Hermione can't do, and she's completely Muggle born. Um, right. I, I just think that was like a really cool way to handle it because to a kid, it's like you, there's like a clear line being drawn where you're saying like everyone's everyone's on equal footing and and there are people who who are going to treat it differently, but like you shouldn't give them any shouldn't give them the time of day. So I, I just think that was cool for for a lesson for kids in general, but also um, the, the the way that the half bloods. So there's half bloods, there's Muggleborns, there's pure bloods. Most most characters in in our story are like half bloods. I think the Weasleys are pure. There are some pure blood wizards, but like Harry is half blood. Yeah. Because technically his mother was muggle born. So then he was, his mother was muggle born. His father was pure, pure blood. So he, he becomes a half technically because he, he doesn't come from pure bloodlines all the way up. I see. And then, yeah. yeah, Hermione being the most powerful witch and in their, of their age. And then, and then being purely muggle born, I just think, all of that's great. So we also get the introduction of the mystery, mysterious voice. We get the petrified cat. We get the start of sort of this this unfolding mystery, uh, which you know clearly I know the answer to a lot of this stuff now. But I remember it being it being pretty pretty tough to crack the first time around. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Is continuing this mystery theme? You were you said that that the Snape stuff was really obvious to you, and you always felt like it was really lit right there. How how did you pick up on the on it was Ginny doing all this stuff? Did you pick up on the fact that? No. Uh, I don't think there's any way you can know it's Ginny. Um, which I should say also, this is our first real introduction to the character of Ginny. Now, was she in the, She was in the first book, I think, mentioned right. But she was on yeah, the, platform nine and three quarters with her mom okay. dropping Ron off. Yeah. Uh, but in this the first is the one. start of of her sort of crush. Right, yeah. that we're getting a hint at that she has a crush on Harry. Yeah, and it's funny because as a kid, like I didn't really think that much of it, and then it became such a prominent thing within the story. So it was kind of right. to me, it was I don't know, it was interesting. There's a lot of crush stuff going on because it's like Hermione has like this knowledge crush on Lockhart, and a lot of the women yeah. in the story love Lockhart, and it's interesting because like as a kid, I don't know that I picked up on a, a lot of it other than the fact that people are crushing on each other. Yeah. 
which is interesting because it's starting to introduce romance into this into these plots. Which, uh, if you want to, you know, take a dip into the to the uh, fan fiction arena, uh, let me just say it's a it's a pretty popular part of these stories. I'm sure. Yeah, I can only imagine. <laughs> is, uh, yeah, figuring out romance and 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 you know, obviously analyzing the romance that's in the novels, but then also introducing your own, you know, your own spin on it and what if this person and this person had you know had something yeah. um that that has led to lots of fan fiction um which you know i don't read it but i know a lot of people who are super into it and you know more power to you yeah it's awesome um if you enjoy it and it's fun then have at it so the the history that we get and we're starting to kind of hear about 50 years ago and you know ron has to polish that that award that tom riddle got and as we, I mean, we're, I'll jump ahead a little bit, just like we see some of the flashback stuff with Hagrid and and all of that. I felt like that was really strong within the story to to again flesh it out and give more background information. And we see the we see Hogwarts before Dumbledore's headmaster. He was just a professor, and I think that that really the the history once history gets starting starts getting added to a story. I feel like it really starts to make it feel full like Dumbledore clearly has a history he knew the chamber had been open before which leads me to how much do you think Dumbledore knew about this how much did he allow to happen because if the cha- if there were like obvious petrifications from a creature from the chamber and he was there before you would think that because for me I've always had this headcanon that like Dumbledore knows all of the stuff that, that's in Hogwarts like he's he knows everywhere you would think he would have at least found the entrance to the Chamber of Secrets. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of interesting to think about how at least the fact that he knew there was something dormant in the school and that it, they could never find it. You know, I honestly, I don't know. That's I mean, it's something to track and something I do find characters like him, these sort of like almost all-knowing wizard types. We talk about with Gandalf and, uh, you know, Joe Abercrombie has a nice play on on him and his first law trilogy, like a character like this. Um, yeah, it can be fun to kind of figure out like what they know and like, what are they sort of manipulating behind the scenes and, 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 and so forth. And um, yeah, I don't know enough about it. You, you, you know, clearly, you know, this world a lot better than I do. So, so I'm just going to go with whatever you say. If you think that that's possible, then sure. <laughs> so playing for Gryffindor, Harry wins the Quidditch match against Slytherin. During the game, an enchanted ball hits Harry and causes him to lose the bones in his arm. That's not really true. He breaks the bones in his arm. Uh, Dobby, a house elf, has enchanted the ball in an effort to have Harry injured and sent home. That night, Harry sees the body of a first year who has been petrified when he arrives at the hospital. Soon after, Lockhart begins a dueling club. During the first meeting, Harry terrifies his fellow students by speaking in parcel tongue to a snake. Harry's ability frightens the others because only the heir to Slytherin, who is responsible for opening the chamber, would have the ability to converse with snakes. Harry comes under further suspicion when he stumbles upon the petrified bodies of Justin Finch, Fletchley, and nearly headless Nick. All right, so two big things to talk about there. I think one is the the breaking of the arm, um, which then results in uh, Lockhart accidentally removing all of his bones. And then he gets sort of like, he takes like a potion to make his bones regrow overnight. Um, This is definitely a little bit silly to me. Um, It doesn't really hold up from like an, an anatomy point of view. Like... That his just floppy arm is just fine um, <laughs> without bones in it. Um, I would feel like that would your body. I don't know. It just it, it's it's kind of goofy to me. This is very this this feels very middle grade, um, but this is kind of to me an example of this story being kind of in an awkward phase where it's where it's still transitioning. 
Um, and then, yeah, him regrowing his bones. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Is this like two hacks of power to say that like any broken bone can just be mended this easily? Well, it's it's interesting because it's like Madame Pomfrey talks about how like if she had been there, she could have mended the bone in an instant. But instead, yeah. like growing them back is like a more difficult task. Um, as far as like, you know, if we're talking about like real world, yeah, it's pretty ba- It doesn't really hold up as far as like his his all of the stuff in his arm holding up in the same position and everything being okay without bones is weird. But it does make for a super nasty uh, shot in the movie where we see it, the bending bending <laughs> back of the arm. So It just reminds me of there's like a Family Guy episode where Peter loses all of his bones. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this one? <laughs> I, I, I vaguely he, remember he, it. He come, they, I think they pull him around in like a wheelbarrow. He's just like a big blob. Uh-huh. And he has no bones. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, this is like old school Family Guy 2 when it was still like, it's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously has constantly been problematic, but has its moments. And, and I think Boneless Peter is a pretty good one. Um, but yeah, that just reminded me of that. And let's move on to the duel, which is one of my favorite scenes in the book. Snape, you know, a.k.a. Uh, Alan Rickman, a.k.a. Hans Gruber, um, <laughs> squaring off against this blowhard and Lockhart and, and just blasting him. It's so fun. Um, oh my god, I and, love it! And I love it it's so good. And it's like um, it's still Snape is so hateful, and I understand why. Like I know, and like later we really get to know why. But it's like, dude, Harry is a different person. Like he's just like always being such a dick to Harry. Like he tells Malfoy the spell to summon the snake, and it's like he obviously he I don't think he would have known that Harry was a parcel mouth. I always feel like there's a bit of of Snape pushing him too, though. Like there's an element of like pushing him to be better and to like become the Harry Potter that he needs to become. I agree with that for sure. Maybe I'm attributing yeah. some stuff that's not really there at this point. I don't know, but I always feel like he's, he's extra hard on him for a reason. I mean, I, I think that that's what ultimately saying. what it becomes for sure. I think that, and I think it like looking back, I think it works, but up to this point, it was just like, Snape is just a, such a dick. Like he's like clearly favoring Malfoy who's a, like sucks. And then like, but is he, is he doing that just to teach Harry a lesson about villains, you know, getting their way in the world? Maybe. And, but, I don't know. <laughs> is, is he Machiavellian about this shit? I don't know. He could, I mean, yeah, very well could be. And I, I think that's probably what it is, but well, and like he knows that he has this, this animosity with, with him, with him. So he's using it and he's, he's setting him up as an enemy and he's making him duel, you know, Draco. And he's, you know, like he's putting him on the spot repeatedly, right? Yeah. And challenging his abilities. And you could say that, you know, Harry grows through all these, through all these things that happen to him. Um, how much of it is intentional? I don't know, but no, I mean, yeah. definitely, it's that you're definitely right. Like, I think that that is why he's so hard on him, and I think that's the explanation that we get later. But the favoritism towards Draco, and then like also he, so he's the, I don't know. Let's not get into like the the Lily and Snape stuff, but like ultimately. Snape is a Snape Snape is a Slytherin in the bad sense and there's a couple of redeeming factors and then there's like some major redeeming factors and I think that we don't get any major ones till much later. I'm really interested to follow the Snape um, plotline because I will be the first to admit that I did not follow it closely enough to where when it came out in the movies that you know like whatever the big reveals were I was like oh, what was his like role in the story again like honestly i did not watch it that closely so i'm going to be really interested to track that now that i'm like really into it yeah and seeing like where he starts to turn you also just get so much more detail in the books so so that really helps me i think in ways that we're like 
it felt like almost like a subplot to me in, the, in a lot of the movies. I mean, yeah, and a lot of stuff becomes subplots. Like, like the, I mean, the Death Day celebration with nearly headless Nick and all of the, the headless hunt and all of them is completely cut from the movie, and that was in in the book. What did what did you think of that subplot? I d- it, it 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 further underlines the theme, I think, of the of the sort of um, purity angle, right? Because because head, nearly headless Nick isn't actually headless, so he's not pure enough yep. to join this hunt. And it's it's purely an arbitrary decision, right, um, to exclude him from that, which I think mirrors so much of the other like blood and, and all this other stuff we've been talking about. So, I think it's another cool way that that you know Rowling kind of further underlined her plot, or I'm sorry, her theme for this book. Yeah, but I mean that dueling um, scene is is great. I love seeing Lockhart get it whenever he, I can. <laughs> So, determined to catch the culprit behind the petrifications, Ron, Harry, and Hermione brew a potion called Polyjuice. The potion allows them to assume the bodies of Slytherins and question Malfoy on the Chamber of Secrets. They find out that Malfoy is not the heir of Slytherin. No more attacks occur for a while, and right before Valentine's Day, Harry finds a diary in a broken toilet. The diary belongs to a ghost named Moaning Myrtle, who haunts the girls' restroom. Harry writes in the diary, which responds by writing back. Through this dialogue, Harry meets Tom Riddle, a boy who many years before had accused Hagrid of opening the Chamber of Secrets. So one thing real quick, Moaning Myrtle didn't own the diary. It was just like it was in her bathroom. Somebody had tossed it. Yeah, I didn't write the summary. I found it online. (laughs) Okay, just making sure. (laughs) Um, No, I, I mean... She did she have it though? It so it was know. it was thrown through her head at one point. Somebody ran in the bathroom okay. and threw so it through. Her when head. you throw something through through somebody's head, they own it. Ownership, guess, yeah, ownership. That's that's ghost law. That's the law. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows this. <laughs> so yeah, I mean the the history stuff of the, the Tom Riddle, all of that has always been one of my favorite parts about this book because I just love anytime I get that history. As long as it's not arbitrary and as long as it's it's not like superfluous to like what's going on. In this case, it, it definitely is not because we get Tom Riddle and, and like did you. So I guess let's try to take it back to did you know that it, Tom Riddle was Voldemort the first time you read the book or did you remember from oh, the movies? No. Oh, no. First time I read the book. Yes, because I, I had seen the movie already. So the connections are, are a lot harder to make is I guess what I'm trying to say. I, cause I the remember very the first, first time you experienced the story. You mean? Yeah, it's hard. To, it's hard yeah. to make all these connections until he says like I'm Voldemort. Um, well, part of the other problem is that his voice, his his name is an anagram for Voldemort, but not if you just say Tom Riddle. You also have to have the middle name in there. Which right. I forget what it is. Marvolo, yeah. Uh, Marvolo, yeah. And if you don't have Marvolo in there, you can't spell out Lord Voldemort. So well, it's, it's not even like it's it's like Tom Marvolo Riddle spells out I am Lord Voldemort. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. So Weird. it's like even it's not even like a pure anagram. It's like a sentence. No, I mean, it is, but it's like it's yeah, it's an anagram of a sentence, not a, yeah. So I get you, which is like I don't know. It's kind of cute, I guess. So I I know you know Rowling likes to play these kind of word games. I like um, that he was setting himself up. I, I like that he was Lord Voldemort before he he was like a sixteen year old Lord Voldemort. Like I always think that's interesting to just think of what I think of as Voldemort and like think of him in Hogwarts, just having his friends be like, "Call me Lord Voldemort." <laughs> well, you know, it's funny too because I can see him like he's in class and he's just doodling on his like notebook and he's like breaking down his name like Tom Riddle and he's like getting the letters and making little anagrams. <laughs> yeah, like, I am Tor Marvel. No, that's not as cool. I am Bo- Voldemort. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I'm Voldemort. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It makes it kind of it makes it kind of funny actually. <laughs> so the Malfoy thing, I remember as a kid 
thinking it was definitely Malfoy. I'm like, it makes sense. Yeah. It's got to be Malfoy's got to be the heir of Slytherin. So I bought into that for sure. So I think that that red herring worked for me. And the way that it's not anybody who's actually at the school and it's like a diary of the past, I always thought was yeah. fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because it sets it up so much to be a person, but it's not really a person. Right? Like it's somebody acting under the influence of a diary. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely like a, I don't know, a, a kind of clever reveal. But yeah, what about the transformation? I feel like this is another like, there's a lot of hallmarks of like fantasy, right? And this is one too, but you take a potion and change into a different person yeah. and walk around in their body and, and experience life that way. I mean, it's such a like classic fantasy thing. So basically you can just drink a polyjuice potion with, with like a pet's hair in it or with like animal hair in it and become like this weird humanoid like creature. And it's like... She becomes a cat woman. Yeah, a cat woman. <laughs> cat girl. So... <laughs> I would just like keep experimenting with that. I feel like potion. Maybe I'm a potions guy. Maybe. But she also was like stuck that way for weeks, right? Yeah. And had to get like go to the hospital to get reversed. Yeah. So it might have been permanent. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I want to be a. I want to be a lizard man. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you went to lizard man. Yeah. <laughs> I want to have a giant maw. Yeah. <laughs> Better eat sub sandwiches with. Yes. Uh, all right, so let's move on. Hermione and a Ravenclaw girl are mysteriously petrified. Harry and Ron venture out of the castle to question Hagrid. Before they reach Hagrid, the Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge, and Lucius Malfoy remove Dumbledore and Hagrid from Hogwarts. As Hagrid is led away, he instructs the boys that by following the spiders, they can find out about the chamber monster. Several nights later, Harry and Ron sneak into the Forbidden Forest to follow the spiders. They discover the monster who killed the girl 50 years before was not a spider, that the girl's body was found in the bathroom, and that Hagrid is innocent. The boys are almost killed by a colony of giant spiders. As they escape, Harry and Ron decide that Moaning Myrtle must have been the girl killed by the monster. So this does remove Hermione from the rest of the novel, which I wasn't a huge fan of. Um, it, she's she's just sidelined, um, which, I don't know, it feels a little weird to me. So I, I it makes sense for the story because I think one of the three, ha- I could have been wrong, I would say. Uh, yeah. But one of the three had to go down and Her- Hermione being the one to figure it out was like always going to happen. Um, yeah, but I, I, I mean, but you look at like, there's certain, it's, it's, it's like, I wish, I kind of wish she had gone against expectations because when you have two guys and a girl, and one of them's going to get taken out, and the other two are going to have to save save them. Everybody goes for take the girl out and have the two guys come to their rescue. Yeah, I mean it's a um, yeah, and I, and I it's 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 a well worn trope. It's a dynamic all the time. It's the sort of uh, you know, Sleeping Beauty syndrome a little bit, right? Like we have to figure out how to wake Hermione. Yeah, um, you know, and it's like I just kind of wish something. Yeah, because like if it had been Ron, that would have been way more interesting in my opinion. And we got to see Hermione and, and Harry have to figure it out together. I don't know. I th- I'm just nitpicking, obviously. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> it works but I understand way. what you're it's saying. Just, like it is, you know, the yeah. fridging is a thing, and um, right. Uh, it's I don't this, know. This series is normally pretty good about it, but in this one particular instance, yeah. So I mean, Hermione figuring it out. I think the reveal works. Like I think once they find the paper in her hand and she had figured it all out, I find that to be really cool. And it kind of extended. I guess that's true. She's so smart that like if it had been her, if she had been the one you know not frozen, she would have just figured it out. Yeah. I don't know. You could write it different way, but right. I see what you're saying about like the most capable, knowledgeable character maybe needed to be the one to be taken out. Yeah, I mean, like Which you say, though, there's a mind. way that they she could have just not figured it out for a little bit longer. But I, I, I mean, yeah. I do like how 
it all goes down and they find the the paper and then they like it's so from the time that 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 happens basically the from from the time that hermione goes down uh the they were just racing to the end of the story you know there's only a couple chapters left and uh i i really like the end of of, of this book like I, you said that mm-hmm. you there's you you have complaints right minimal Min- okay. compared to the first to, compared to the first novel okay so taking out dumbledore and i know it's it's you know i know that it's lucius malfoy like you know threatening other people in order to get dumbledore taken out but like what's the ultimate goal here of malfoy i know that he doesn't like dumbledore because he he you know sticks up for for half-bloods and and muggleborns but like okay so you take out dumbledore and then and then riddle and then tom riddle voldemort comes back was kind of the plan all along so if he comes back what happens with the other voldemort the one who's like a smoky mist. Is that was that really the plan? I don't know. Um, to me, I always just thought that it was like, like Voldemort is always against Dumbledore, and anything that one of his sort of supporters can do to discredit um, and take power away from Dumbledore, and then Hagrid, who is another um, you know staunch ally of Dumbledore's. Um, is going to be good for Voldemort in the long run, right? Yeah. Like, the more you can discredit him, if you can get him out of positions of power, that kind of stuff, um, re- remove his support. Um, so, to me, it was it was more that, um, rather than trying to, like, elevate, Rid- like, Tom Riddle to be some sort of, like, equal or, 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 or you know, I don't know. Maybe he could help Voldemort in a way, in a weird way. It but, just seems like his plan yeah. was a very well hatched. Like, it was like he, he basically gave Ginny the the book because he knew it had ties to Voldemort and he wanted Arthur to get caught Arthur's family to get caught with it the Weasleys because he hated the Weasleys so that was his plan initially and I guess he just didn't understand that it was Voldemort in the in the diary like I I think it's more just like like you know take down the Weasleys take down Dumbledore take down Hagrid and it's just like he's sort of like leaping at these opportunities to do that because like we come to find out that like Malfoy wasn't the most loyal of the Voldemort followers when Voldemort's gone so it's like it doesn't really make sense for him to be like positioning Voldemort to come back to power by taking Dumbledore up he just genuinely doesn't like these people too right like they go against his racism and his his you know views on the world and I think that's what it is it's like yeah he wants to get somebody in power who will get get the class system going and make sure that people are are beneath others um and this is also our introduction to Azkaban because Hagrid gets sent to Azkaban and I will just say it's also really cool like the I loved the idea of, of coming in and removing Dumbledore from from being like the head of Hogwarts because that's that's an oh shit moment, right? Mm-hmm. You're like that can't happen. Like you know he is the principal, he's the headmaster or whatever. Like you can't do that. So it's a it's a cool kind of shake up. It doesn't last very long. Dumbledore returns very quickly, but um, it's cool. It's cool to see it kind of the power structure shaken up a little bit here, and everything maybe isn't so um, fixed and safe as we want to think it is. I love the the moment at the end when Dumbledore's talking about how he was bombarded with owls, apologizing and saying how he they were like threat like they had been threatened and that's why they removed Dumbledore and they wanted him to come back. Uh, yeah, I just love that part because it's like clearly that's the rational thing to do is to make sure that Dumbledore's still where he needs to be. So, what'd you think of uh, Shelob the giants? Oh wait, no, not Shelob. <laughs> um, yeah, what'd you think of our giant fantasy spiders here? Uh, I think it was definitely like an homage. I, didn't, I definitely think, I think that it so. was. You can't have a giant spider and not be like, "Thank you, Tolkien, for for the template, and <laughs> thank you for the yeah. the giant spider thing." Um, I think it's interesting that like people's major fears, like you know, it's either snakes or spiders for a lot of people. I think that's interesting that they're both in this. And I wanted to ask sure. you really quickly what 
you would rather Am battle? Am I more afraid of? What would you rather battle? A giant <laughs> spider who's blind or a giant basilisk who will, who will like, you can't look at? Oh, basilisk is terrifying, man. Yeah. That's, like, genuinely terrifying. And and also a snake version of a basilisk, like, a, like that is just a giant snake. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, if you're just talking about, like, run-of-the-mill, what would I rather, rather battle, a snake or, or a spider? I'd rather do battle with a spider any day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I really don't like snakes. Well, I guess I would say rather than saying just just blind Aragog, the swarm of spiders or or the basilisk. Still the spiders, man. So so the basilisk, one of the things that so it's already bad because it's a snake. But the idea that you can't look at it and catch its eye or you're gonna die is terrifying because then you're in a situation where this thing, this terrifying thing, is coming after you and you can't look at it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's just something really scary about that, right? It gets the opposite of like um, we were talking about, like the hedge monsters and the Shining, or or the 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 angels and Doctor Who, or whatever, right? Where where you look at them and they and they stop moving, and then you can't like if you look away, that's when they're dangerous. It's the opposite, right? It's you you can't look at them, and if you do, you die. So they're just dangerous, and you can't look at them, which is just really scary in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I agree. The basilisk, it's just too powerful. The not being able to look at it is just like you can't well, you can't fight that, obviously. Yeah, which is why we have a Deus Ex Machina in the form of a phoenix that happens here, uh, which is one of, one of my slight criticisms. And it's and, it, and one of the reasons it is a slight criticism is because we had a similar Deus Ex Machina in the first book <laughs> that comes you know in the form of in the form of Dumbledore and the and the spirit of the mother and all this stuff that was mm-hmm. you know nothing really that Harry had any control over. And once again, Harry has no real control over the the phoenix. It just happens kind yeah. of thing. I think both. Uh, um you could see both of these deus ex machinas as being set up for later th- because they both become relevant again. Both of these deus ex like so it's you could see it as setting up. You mean like in later books for later books? Yeah, like for so yeah. these reveals would help for later. But stuff, that's but almost I, more like that's almost more like a retconning. I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like taking something that was a deus ex machina and trying to make it not as bad. <laughs> it's kind of convenient all of the things that that help Harry here in the end, but like the Gryffindor in me is just like, oh god, I love this part. I love all of this stuff. <laughs> We get no, and I, and he Harry does a lot more in this final battle than he does in the in the in the first novel. He he meets up with with Quirrell, and he's just like it's over, <laughs> like it right. happened, it's over before it begins in the book at least, and through nothing that Harry really does, just being there. Um, so here, yeah, we get to see Harry be like we're getting way ahead. So let's go to the next part of the summary here. So once Ron and Harry know that it's a basilisk, uh, before the boys can act on their knowledge, the teachers announce that Jenny Weasley has been taken to the Chamber of Secrets. Ron, Harry, and Lockhart slide down a secret passage into, in Myrtle's bathroom to underground tunnels. When Lockhart accidentally curses himself, Ron helps him and Harry leaves them behind. Harry enters the Chamber of Secrets and encounters Ginny's still body and, and Tom Riddle. Tom turns out to be a younger version of Voldemort who has been enchanting Ginny through his journal. Harry calls for help from Dumbledore. A phoenix and a magic hat arrive. So let's stop there right in the middle of this fight for a second here. We were, we were already starting to get into it, so we can fully talk about it now. <laughs> I got to say, I um, love the I, uh, the Lockhart obliviating himself. It just had to happen. Yeah. It had to happen. It's perfect. I hate the guy yeah, so much. Like and that. the fact that he was like, they, they were sending him. I love the moment when Snape was like, this is your moment to shine, Lockhart. You've been talking about how you know where the chamber <laughs> is. You got to go down there. And I was just like, oh, yes. Like, I love you, Snape, for doing this. And then, and then, oh yeah, he, dude. Snape wants none of his shit, man. And then he's so he's good. packing to leave. He's trying to run away, and the kids catch him. Yeah. Oh my god, so good! And they force him down there, and then he he like turns on them in the in ultimate moment of just betrayal, and he's gonna obliviate a couple of kids and leave them for dead. And it was just like, oh god, I'm so glad. Yeah, we see we see true cowardice from him, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And and his willingness to do anything to preserve his image. So the Tom Riddle conversation, the the arrival of the Phoenix, uh, Jenny's body. I mean, so once again, we also have another, you know, female character who's being rescued by Harry. I did like the idea that Riddle was able to sort of use anonymity and in a sort of almost like a, I don't know, did you think of like instant messaging or like that sort of thing? Because it almost felt like like Riddle was like catfishing Jenny here a little bit or something. I mean, right? kind of was, yeah. I didn't really think of that though. Yeah, it's it's, it's almost like a like, it's almost like a cautionary tale for like modern times and, and who you might be talking with on the internet because um, you don't know what their motivations are, right? So that's kind of scary. And it seems like that's sort of is what happened here, that she had this like conversation with him and didn't really know what he was was truly after. Yeah, it's also interesting that he like has the ability to like take over the people who write in the novel in his or in his diary. So like he's he takes over Jenny's body basically and forces her to do things she's forgetting, like whole swaths of time. Petrifies people. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. Well, it's the it's the basilisk who's like Ginny's commanding the basilisk through Tom to to petrify people, right? And the basilisk is like coming up through the pipes or something. Is that what we're supposed to understand? Yeah, the plumbing, the pipes, and everything seems like kind of a stretch. And one, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how big are those pipes? The, I, I will say that in the book, I was surprised. She said that uh, Rowling wrote that the basilisk was like twenty feet. And I was like, wow, that is not the size that I thought it was like 100 feet. Yeah. I think it maybe it got sized up a little bit for the for the movie. Yeah, probably. So th- I also really liked the ways that she made to keep people from being killed by the by looking at them. The petrification is because people are viewing the basilisk eyes through something. And so it's like yeah. through the water, through the ghosts, through the mirrors. I, I thought that was really interesting because it's like then it makes the threat when Harry goes to fight it even worse. It's if you look at it, you're dead. Well, and another another example of this being middle grade is the fact that nobody actually dies from it, I think, is, is another kind of clear example of like it has this deadly ability, but we don't actually ever see it well, carried out. Yes, but Myrtle died from it. Myrtle did, but she's, you know, she's this, like... So Myrtle's an interesting character to think about, too, right? Because she's essentially a victim of bullying who haunts this bathroom and has continued to be bullied into her into her uh, afterlife by the other ghosts and by everybody. And it's weird, too, because, like, as much as this book is anti-bullying, it continuously plays off of... Plays it kind of sort of for comedy. And we're supposed to kind of laugh at her. Um, and, and this also reminds me of, of this repeated thing I've noticed in the last, in these two books and, and, and elsewhere is that often physical outward appearance is an indicator of inner, you know, morality or goodness. And you often have evil characters looking ugly or being fat or, you know what I mean? Like you look at the Dursleys, like their, their, their inner ugliness is, is, is shown on their exterior. And this is a big trope in in fiction, all of fiction. Uh, you see this a lot of the places, and and I feel like Rowling is a little bit guilty of this, at least early on. Well, um, yeah. and 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 I think Myrtle, you know, she's kind of played for last. She's you know fat Myrtle. She's you know pimply Myrtle, and then like people like add on additional things, like don't forget this, and I don't know, man. It's like I felt bad for Myrtle. Oh yeah, I think, but I think that's the point. I think that like Rowling's saying, like, look at the effect that you can have on bullying someone. Um, which is, yeah, and it, but, but it is, but, but it's also, but it's also like kind of funny though. haha, ha, Right. Right. Yeah. There are, like, there are jokes being made for sure. I think maybe ultimately like the reveal of her being the person who was killed and being so important to the plot maybe is a way for people to be like, oh, she is more than just a joke character. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But you're right. Like there is a little bit of something there. 
the fact this is another thing I wanted to touch on with Dumbledore knowing everything. Dumbledore's been headmaster for how long? Who, like I don't even I don't know off the top of my head how long he's been headmaster. Well, he wasn't fifty years ago. Right, it was about fifty years ago because he was a Transfiguration teacher in fifty years ago. The question is clearly they know who was killed by the Basilisk and by the Chamber of Secrets being opened. Why didn't they talk to her more about it? Like, yeah, I know that the only details that she really had was that she saw glowing yellow eyes and and that was kind of it in like a boy's voice or something. Yeah. Even that, like, I don't think that Dumbledore, I mean, unless he's holding something back and he wants all of these things to no. progress the way that he says, like, he, why didn't he investigate further? Why didn't they? No, he had to have known more. I, I really do feel like Dumbledore knows more. And, it, and a lot of it is just like, he's not revealing this to our characters. I think so. So they're, they're, they're kind of operating under, under imperfect knowledge. But I feel like he he knows a lot more than he lets on. I agree with that. But then you're but then it's like the other side of that is, and I know that it becomes a th- kind of something that he does. But eleven and twelve year olds are fighting basilisks and and the, <laughs> the like Voldemort spirits and shit. So yeah, well he sends his he sends his phoenix down there. Yeah, help him out. He's teaching a man. He's he's it's through the crucible of combat that they will emerge victorious. <laughs> what is that? Edge of the tip of the spear. <laughs> um. You know, yeah, him and him and Snape both are are putting putting Harry through the ringer to to make him into a you know someone who's going to be able to fight Voldemort one day. And I mean, I, I don't know. You could say that it works. So, uh, so here we go. Let's get into the end. Tom summons the Basilisk, uh, but the Phoenix punctures its eyes. The Hat produces a sword, which Harry uses to kill the giant snake. Harry sticks a Basilisk fang through the diary, destroying Tom. Ginny wakes up. Harry explains his adventure to Dumbledore. Lucius Malfoy storms into the office with his house elf Dobby, and Harry frees Dobby by tricking Lucius into giving Dobby a sock. All is well in the castle as the students leave for their summer vacations. So, a few things here. Um, for one, uh, the puncturing of the eyes, and and it was like it was like Harry would have gotten fucking petrified if that hadn't happened, right? Because he just looks at the snake and sees that his eyes are torn out. Because if, if, yeah. if that hadn't happened, that's the death of Harry Potter right there. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. so crazy. And it's like, it, it's like, yeah, there's a moment in the book where she says, like, Harry couldn't take it anymore. And he decided to peek through, like, squinted eyes. And you're like, dude, you're dead. Yeah. If, if, like, you're risking a lot right now by peeking through squinted eyes. He's got plot armor on, though, that's so thick that he knows he'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, I love, I still love all of this part. When, when Harry, like, when the Phoenix shows up, I love Fox. Um, basically from here to the end of the movie, Harry can do no wrong and he's the coolest guy book. ever. Say what? <laughs> I said book. Oh yeah. Sorry. For the rest of the book, <laughs> Harry can do no wrong from here on out. Fights the basilisk. Uh, the, you know, the fox comes in and takes care of the eyes for him and then he does battle with it. He pulls the sword of Gryffindor from the sorting hat, which is another fun moment. That's cool. I don't know. It's funny that like the thing that he'd been really like conflicted over this whole time was if the sorting hat had done something correct and putting him in, in Gryffindor and how he would have done great in Slytherin because of his, you know, some of his abilities that he's gotten from Voldemort seemingly, or nece- maybe just like he would have done well in Slytherin in general. But uh, when he pulls the, I think I think Dumbledore even says that like when he pulls it, it's that only a true Gryffindor could pull the, the sword of Gryffindor from the hat. Um, so it was kind of the sorting hat's way of saying like, yeah, like re-emphasizing, even though we found out earlier, but re-emphasizing the fact that like Harry's a Gryffindor because of the choices that he makes and and like what he wants and what he strives to be. So I think it's smart on on Rowling's part to realize this early on that like we would still be talking about the houses today and that we would be like, well, am I this or am I this? And it's kind of just like mm-hmm. if you're sorted into something, 
you probably lean towards that. That's probably what a lot of your, what makes you up. But ultimately, like, what do you strive for? What are you is your own decision. So, so this fight also to me is sort of a mix between your like quintessential dragon fight where the main character fights the dragon and slays the dragon um, and the, you know, of myth battle with Medusa. Mm hmm. Um, right, you know, you have which you know the basilisk is clearly sort of plays a similar role here. Uh, so I think that's fun. It's kind of like a blending of two different sort of traditional stories, but it also underlines how traditional these first novels are, in my opinion, right, and how much they borrow from other fantasy. Um, so it is interesting to see later on when the story kind of really comes into its own um, and, and and relies less on on sort of like remixing these sort of tropes. We were reading this time, I was thinking about the Medusa element and how uh, it reminds me of, you were talking about Rowling's like background and how she really studied the like, um, you know, Greek mythology and like a lot of that. Latin, so, yeah. you know, you can see those elements in her story and the way that she blends stuff. I, I think I said this before, but the way that she blends stuff is part of what really makes the world so enticing to me and why I love it. It's just like, it's so many things that I love blended together to become its own thing. So Harry's, plan here to get Dobby freed a little bit questionable in my opinion <laughs> his plan seems to be I'm gonna I'm gonna put it in a sock and hand it and hand it to to Lucius right no no, no. he puts um, he puts the sock in the diary oh that's right yeah so the other way around put a sock in the diary just so that he can count on Lucius throwing it in the general direction of Dobby like how would he know that that's what Lucius is gonna do with it uh, well, it, like Lucius could throw it anywhere. He could, he could, he could light it on fire. He could like put it in his pocket, or he could throw it at Harry. Like I don't know. Like he could do many, any number of things with it. But he's like, I'm sure, surely he'll throw it in the general direction of Dobby. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's the commentary about like the you know like he wouldn't want to touch it. It's like oh Harry gave me this. I'll just like hand it over. And I think in the movie it's more handed than thrown. Also, um, is it? But th- th- it brings up a good question because it's like I guess he was just willing to take the risk if like he didn't hand it to Dobby then like that was his attempt at saving Dobby, yeah. Dobby and it worked out. But like I said, he can do no wrong to the end of the novel. So yeah, it works out. And work I mean, plot, freeing right? Dobby is like such a huge <laughs> moment and I love it. It's cool. Yeah. I just, I think I would have liked some sort of slightly more clever um, ploy here, but it works. It's fine, I guess. Um, it definitely is what he needed to do here. And then we get to see Dobby immediately turn on his master and blast him with a spell and tear his bones from his body. Oh, wait, no, that doesn't um, <laughs> Rip him into a million um, pieces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's cool though. It's it's uh we get to see some comeuppance here. Um but everything is still sort of fun and 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 light in a way that uh fits middle grade. Something that's always stood out to me is there's a line in the book where uh Lucius almost like twitches for his wand a couple of times when he's near Dumbledore. And like the balls on this guy to think that he's gonna pull a wand on Albus Dumbledore and like try to fight Dumbledore in combat oh, yeah. is like, come on, man, what are you doing? Like I know that you're angry and you're probably used to pulling your wand out and fighting people, but like it was just cracked me up that that when all this stuff went down, he almost tried to attack Dumbledore and then uh, gets his ass kicked by a house elf. So real quick before we end, I also want to ask you about there was a character here that is like the captain of Harry Potter's fan club. And he has like a camera and he follows him around like paparazzi taking pictures of him and stuff. Colin Creevy. Yeah. yeah. Do you think this has is this like a real world thing? Is this like J.K. Rowling? Because she was starting to become a star now. And this was probably starting to happen. Right. And maybe already was happening quite, quite suddenly. So did she feel like Harry Potter being famous she maybe understood more what that's actually like and what that what living that way can be like. That's a good point. I don't know. I never really thought about that. I, I yeah. mean, I always just assumed that it was a, 
natural progression because like he's like a muggle-born right. and he's like so fascinated and so of course he'd be fascinated by harry potter but yeah maybe you're right maybe there's something there about like I, was her life full-on paparazzi at this point like was it was it as it was probably starting to become that way yeah you know, she was starting to become a you know multi bestseller and and having very popular movies adapted from her work um, this was probably just starting out, but I assume um, from what we read last time, you know, her stardom really took off suddenly. Yeah. Um, and she went from being a nobody to being J.K. Rowling, you know, renowned author of Harry Potter. So and it did happen very fast for her once once it, once the book hit. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to think that maybe maybe she wrote that in there. Um, I, I want to save a little bit for next for next week when we're going to talk about this movie. Um, do you have any other general thoughts you want to give about the book? Uh, just that uh, there's a couple more details in the book that I th- that I think are really worth reading. So if, you, if you, I'm sure everybody's read it, but if you haven't, definitely read. If you're a Harry Potter fan, it adds like a little mm-hmm. bit more context to to some of the stuff here and there, and uh, just great fun to revisit. And I have a lot of thoughts for the movie. Cool. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the last looks episode that we have coming up. Maybe we can talk about it at the end. Um, so stick around for that, and we'll talk about like what that episode's going to be like, and and how you can interact with us on it if you if you want to. Yeah, it sounds good to me. All right, so first off, we want to thank Remy Nakamura, who was a previous guest on the show. He supports us on Patreon, which is like amazing. So thank you so much, Remy. We enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you for your support. Um, if you guys want to find out how you can support us, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film, and you can find out like what sort of uh, bonus episodes and stuff that we're offering there. Also, if you wanted to connect with us, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all those at ink to film And we have a great Facebook group, the Council of Inklings, and we're pretty active on there. And that's where we posted the Hogwarts house poll. So go check that out if you haven't already. Yeah, that's where we also, uh, or our listeners and patrons were able to vote on us covering this project. So yeah, definitely the, it's probably the best place to interact with us outside of Patreon itself, right? And the other way you can support this podcast is by leaving us a rating and a review. Uh, let's get some on Facebook. We haven't had any there for a while. It'd be awesome to get more there because um, that's something that we're definitely people can stumble onto the podcast. And that would be a huge help. And it costs you nothing but you know a minute of your time. Thank you to Goblins from Mars for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. So let's talk about this Last Looks episode that we have coming up in two weeks. So next week will be our movie episode, and that'll be our Christmas project. But then right after that, before the new, before New Year's Eve, we'll do our last looks, which is something we started last year. Um, and we did for the first time, we looked back at like all the projects we had covered. Now, last year, we had only done, what, three months because we were new. Um, this year, we have a full year of content to look back at. And um, I'm really interested to see how this one plays out because there's a lot more for us to talk about. A um, couple of things that we did last year is we a lot of people wrote in with questions and we looked back at like our favorite projects. We looked back at like observations we had about the nature of covering books and films. And then we also had feedback that that we didn't get a chance to talk about about multiple projects. And we were able to talk about that on the last look episode instead. So if you would like to send in any sort of feedback about any of the projects that you've done this year, send it, you know, go ahead and send it uh, to our Gmail account, which is inktofilm at gmail.com, and we could potentially talk about it on that episode. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. It was a lot of fun last year, and I mean, just like, I can't even, like, we did so much this year. Annihilation, Ready Player One, Fellowship of the Ring, and those, that's just in, like, the first quarter of the year. So, like, that's <laughs> so, so much, much man. that we covered. Yeah, and we've had so many guests on. Like, it's been a big, it's been a big year, and it's gonna be a lot of fun. I, I think we should do it a little more casual. I'm thinking I might, I might have a, you know, an alcoholic beverage and and just kind of relax and and just sit back and kind of recap the year and, um, 
yeah, I just I, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a fun sort of like low key episode for us, but it, but it's something that you know, like even if you haven't listened to all the episodes, you know, you can come and enjoy because we we won't get into like heavy spoilers for anything. So yeah, I think it'll be cool and it'll be a fun way to kind of like cap off this year. Um, but yeah, if you have any questions for us or or anything you'd like for us to weigh in on, we'd love to get some of those questions. So please send them to inktofilm at gmail dot com. And, you know, you can put in the subject line questions for last looks or last looks, whatever, you know, that's fine. Um, and, and we'll get to those. Uh, it'd be a cool way for you to interact with us. So uh, we hope people do it. And until next time. Thanks for listening. Oh, no.